Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey guys and girls, how's everybody doing this week? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 42. Uh, Absolutely excited uh, to have Bernie Dressel joining us today. Uh, Of course, Bernie uh, is the leader of the BBB featuring Bernie Dressel these days. Spent 16 years playing in the Brian Setzer Orchestra. Just a phenomenal jazz big band drummer he's going to be joining us here in just a second after this message from our sponsor lost cabos drumsticks the best kept secret for drummers is finally out lost cabos drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with but these are not your father's drumsticks lost cabos drumsticks is canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you with operations in over 28 countries worldwide thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the U.S., Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center, or heart, of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Lost Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Lost Cabos Drumsticks. All right, everybody. As I mentioned, going to be joined here in just a second by the great Bernie Dressel. Uh, Bernie took some time out of his busy schedule to uh, to come on the show. Uh, of course, the BBB featuring Bernie Dressel. Uh, he has a fantastic new record out that I want everybody to check out. You'll hear us talk about that. Uh, moreover, if you have watched any television or movies in the last 10 years, you have heard Bernie's drumming. Bernie does a lot of the Hollywood sessions with orchestras, um, and, and you'll hear us talk a little bit about that. I simply don't have time to go over all those credits. He's just done so much. So please help me welcome the great Bernie Dressel to the Drum Shuffle. Hey, good afternoon, Bernie. How are you doing today? Hey, Jamie. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm excited to talk to you and have others hear us talking. 
Well, I, I'm excited to have you on my show as well. Let me just tell you that I've been <laughs> such a fan of your playing over the years, and uh, you know, I I have had the the wonderful opportunity to to hear the new record "Burn, Burn, Burn," and folks, that is spelled B-E-R-N, "Burn, Burn, Burn." Uh, the BBB featuring Bernie Dressel, just a great record, Bernie. Um, you know, and and we're going to talk about the record, but typically, what I like to do with our guests is start at the beginning. Tell us how you got into music and, and how did you become a drummer to begin with? Yes. Um, it might be a similar story to some other drummers out there because a lot of things start with the Beatles if you're the right age yeah. and Ed Sullivan. But for me, it goes back just a little further than that. Um, I mean, I was born in 1961 and Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, which was huge, you know, for a lot of musicians and drummers and uh, as a launching point of, ooh, that looks like fun. I want to do that. Uh, now, keep in mind that when they're on Ed Sullivan, I'm two and a half years old almost. So it, it made a big impression, and I was aware of them at that point already. My grandmother had bought me Meet the Beatles, you know, even around that time. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, for my record player, my phonograph. And, uh, but it really started before that in that my parents used to go on Sunday drives back when gas prices were 25 cents a gallon or whatever. And, uh, you'd go on Sunday drives in our 61 cat or no, 59 Cadillac convertible hot car. Yeah, it it sounds like it. The baby. Yeah. But I was in the back seat, you know, without a, any restraints, probably, you know, back then, no baby seats. Uh, and they put the radio on, and I would pound the seat with my hands. And so I guess my parents must have looked at each other and said, he's a genius. Look at him. Pound the seat. <laughs> but uh, so I guess I was showing affinity towards kind of moving to music early on. And my dad tried to take me in for lessons, drum lessons when I was uh, uh, three years old, three and a half, four. They kept telling him, uh, he's a little too young. Bring him back later. He kept trying every six months, I guess. And finally, at four and a half, I, I took a lesson, trial lesson. Okay, okay, we'll try it. But I was very quiet, very shy, and which meant I listened well. And the lesson went well. I guess I was mathematically in, kind of inclined that I took to the quarter note idea, uh, the mathematics idea about uh, music, and uh, it went very well. And they made the joke, oh, you should have brought them in earlier. But um, that's when I started taking lessons at four and a half. So let's see, four and a half is 1966. I mean, Help was already out, and I'd seen that Hard Day's Night and Help by that time. So... I got a pretty early start, you know, getting some toy guitars, jumping around, singing Hound Dog by Elvis, you know. And again, this is that shy boy. So, but you put an instrument in my hand and I would go, you know, wild, like the Beatles or Elvis. I'd be out banging trash cans in the backyard, singing at the top of my lungs, although you don't want to hear me sing now. (laughs) But uh, um, So that's how I got my real, real, what you would call start. I got you. Okay. Well, I guess I'm curious, when did, when did jazz kind of take center stage for you? Were you always drawn to that art form? I mean, you mentioned the Beatles and and obviously, you know, rock and roll popular music uh, was bound to have been, 
you know, a major influence in your life. But when did you, you know, really start getting into the to the swing drumming, I guess? Yeah, I mean, the Beatles were so huge at that time. I mean, you know, maybe second fiddle was the Monkees or Herman's Hermits, you know, the British invasion. Um, but jazz, I didn't know anything about that. Uh, I probably heard Al Hurt on TV or something, you know, or uh, something like on, a, on Ed Sullivan, maybe a little bit. I don't really remember it that well. What I do remember is getting... Uh, my first Buddy Rich record, and probably, I think it was released in 69, maybe 68, called Live at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Oh, yeah. Club here in L.A. And it was a rock club that uh, Buddy brought the big band to the rock club, no, not a jazz club, and recorded that album. And uh, was it a double album? I don't remember. It was a fold-out, though. Uh, maybe not a double album, but it opened up. And... Uh, Hearing that, and it was rock music, meaning he was doing more rock stuff at that time. Not every tune, like Greensleeves was a three, four fast swinger, but there was more rock stuff on it. And I think that applied to the Whiskey A Go Go. And uh, so that was a good transition of what I knew as the straight eighth note and rock to the big band sound and jazz and horns and buddies playing and. It took off from there. I mean, you know, even sliding into the group Chicago with their horns. Um, Billy Cobham later with uh, the funk side of things, but with the, the chops on top of that. So uh, uh, that's that's kind of was my introduction to jazz, really that rock big band album of Buddies called Live at the Whiskey Go-Go. I gotcha. Okay. Well, now, you know, I know that you've been in L.A. since the early 80s, um, and I also know that, that you're a graduate of the Eastman School of Music, um, which, you know, had to be just a, a wonderful experience in your development as a player. Um, but, you know, when you got to L.A. in 83, I mean, this is we had a whole lot of stuff going on in Los Angeles in in the early 80s you you still had kind of the the you know new wave skinny tie guys and then you had all of the metal guys in LA was there a jazz scene happening at that time that you immersed yourself in sure you know the east coast new york side you know known for jazz Maybe more than LA. Can I, can I even say that? I mean, the world is so small now with the internet and all the connect, connections we have to anywhere. But, uh, LA was definitely coming from definitely a pop side of things, I think. But there was a big jazz scene here too. I remember maybe this, I don't know, third weekend sitting in, uh, uh, at a club where John Patitucci was playing bass and, and, uh, like, that usually doesn't even happen here in L.A. where people sit in that much. It doesn't, I think that's more, a little more of a New York thing or the, a past thing. I don't know how it is there now. But, uh, so there was a jazz scene here. But again, I was doing everything, doing some top 40 gigs, playing with a group on the road a little bit called The Letterman. Um, I went out with Maynard in 86, a few years after being here, after playing some, I don't know, combination fusion gigs here in L.A., the jazz gigs, whatever, that kind of led to some associations with some people from the band that got me on Maynard's gig in 86. 
But, uh, yes, there was a jazz scene here, but it was definitely pretty wide. You know, Poncho Sanchez was already doing Latin jazz here. And uh, it's, it's, you know, just like a big city of New York or L.A., it's very diverse culturally, which is what I love. You know, all the cultures here that I didn't get in Pennsylvania as much, especially musically, let alone uh, people living here. Um, that uh, I love it and uh, what you can learn from all the different cultures. And, you know, people will ask me, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite drummer? What's your, you know, favorite music to play? And my favorite is diversity and just a wide range of things. And I love that I get to do that in my career and who I live near. Well, I mean, you, you said a mouthful there, and I think that's a very astute observation um, you know, and, and I hate to jump around so much, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, talk about the the gig that I guess, you know, dare I say, really put the spotlight on you. And that was and I want to say you joined the band probably 91, 92, something like that. You were the drummer in the Brian Setzer Orchestra for many many years and and you guys won 15 yeah 15, yeah many grammys um i i want to say uh, three or four million records sold i mean obviously that was you know it, it was a big band gig but it's brian setzer so you had the, you know the definite That's rock right. and roll thing going on as well talk to us a little bit about that gig because i know it was uh, a, a pretty special time in your life Yes, and it, it was like the end of 92 when I joined, and I finally stopped doing it about 10 years ago, 2007, and he's still going strong with the orchestra. Um, but I did it for 15 years, and yeah, I remember I was involved in some smooth jazz stuff at the time, and uh, some different things, and I got the call from a sax player that uh, I'd work with a lot with Keiko Matsui. He lived three doors down from Brian Setzer in Santa Monica, and this saxophone player, Mike Acosta, he, they would have jam sessions. I never went to them. They never asked me, but I, I just wasn't, wasn't in that scene with that, but Brian walked by, heard them playing, said, hey, can I sit in? And they went, sure, go get your guitar. Okay, and they're kind of half laughing, probably like, oh, this rock guy, he's going to try and play jazz with us, <laughs> and Brian can play, and he's d- diverse, too, as far as jazz, and rockabilly and rock and uh so he held his own big time and after that was over they go hey brian said uh hey you know i've always thought of adding like a big band to the stray cats uh we talked about maybe doing that once on the tonight show with johnny carson with doc severinson's big band do you think you could put something like that help me put that together mike and so mike called me and there were two gigs and I couldn't do it. I was working already, and I didn't bail on the gig I had. <laughs> and, uh, Mike said, hey, there's this guy from the Stray Cats doing a couple of big band gigs. You know, he didn't play it out too hard. It was just a couple of gigs. Who knows? You know, could end right there. And I, ah, I'm already working. It's hard for me to get out of that. Okay. So they did two gigs with a drummer named Dave Dirge. So Dave's a great drummer and a great jazz drummer. And uh, they did a couple of gigs without me, and then they went well well enough where Brian said, hey, let's try it again. What about that other drummer you were going to call that couldn't do it? Let's try him. So I thought to myself, hmm, Dave's great. Uh, 
why are they calling me? Why don't they just stay with him? And maybe he approached it to jazz. You know, Brian comes from Elvis Presley, Rockabilly, Stray Cats. So I don't know how they did it, but I thought maybe, maybe possibly it wasn't rock enough or something. And I thought, well, let me try to not just play big band, which would be the obvious thing to do. You look at 13 horns and upright bass, you play the style. So I approached it a little different out of the gate, a little more Krupa, a little less jazz, more swing, 40 swing dance, more backbeat like uh, Slim Jim Phantom from the Stray Cats would yeah. do, only adding that to the big band and trying to hybrid it. So it worked, and he stayed with me. And even from there, it evolved over time. I, I used to tell people, like, I guess it's a concoction of thinking about Krupa, Krupa's swing and flair, uh, uh, Ringo's shot, uh, no, Ringo's shot, Ringo's groove, and that, that thing, or Steve Gadd's groove, and Keith Moon's unabashed energy, and throw that all into a blender, and maybe a little Buddy, Buddy, Buddy Rich shops in there, coming from the big band thing, and put that together to create something new. And so that's where that kind of started, and it stayed, it was pretty traditional kind of Krupa 40s swing out of the gate. Brian was doing like Freddie Green Count Basie polite guitar, uh, playing the four quarter notes and singing his butt off, you know, underrated singer. Um, and then it evolved over time where he realized, wait, people want to hear us rock. And so we started rocking up even more. The bass went from just traditional jazz upright bass to the slap. Rockabilly bass by Dirty Boogie in 98, where, like you said, we sold 3 million copies of the Dirty Boogie with the Brian Sisso Orchestra. So, yes, a great time, kind of be on the map, yet at the same time, you go, you know, being fame or whatever, is, people either know you or you don't. We'd be out on the road. Who do you play with? <laughs> Brian Sisso Orchestra. And they'd either go, oh my gosh! Or they'd go, who? Right. So, that's like... <laughs> Like I fist bumped George Clooney on uh, the Jimmy Kimmel show. I had that was part of a thing where I was hired to do that and play a little rim shot for him on for Jimmy's fiftieth birthday. I told my dad, "Yeah, I worked with George Clooney. You know, it's pretty famous." Um, yeah, of course he didn't know who he was. Who's that? So you know, people either know you or you don't. I did get some notoriety from it, but it was in a certain circle, and uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'll just say this, Bernie, you know, everybody knows you, nobody knows me. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but during that time, you know, I mean, I I remember, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, during that time, kind of, you know, like you said, the the Dirty Boogie record, um, you know, I want to say 1998, I think you may have even mentioned the year, but in 98, 99, you know, that's kind of when I was on the road with my you know, uh, most successful band and you guys were everywhere. You could not turn on a TV or a radio without hearing Brian Setzer orchestra. It was just amazing. It was just like this, you know, it was a cultural phenom. It really was during that time. Yeah, so and there was a whole swing movement with about four or five other bands that were kind of doing some different things. Like whether it's big bad voodoo daddy uh, or Royal Crown Review in the movie Mask, or Cherry Pop and Daddies had a, a, a video on MTV, remember them? Yes. Um, 
so there was it wasn't just us doing this you know thing that no one else was doing i mean no one else was doing a big band it was unique and it was brian setzer coming out of the straight cats but there was like a little movement uh in fact it's <laughs> interesting like on modern drummer you know bernie you're going to be on the cover oh wow great you know along with four other people where they'll just put your names in a, in a cartoon of a drum head. <laughs> and like, I always see cover boys on the magazine. It's like, Oh, I'm on a cover. Oh, they're not using my picture. <laughs> but, Cause it was like, it wasn't just us. There was a little movement of a thing that kind of propelled it too. Because, you know, at that time, like you mentioned the, or we both mentioned the year 98 Nirvana was big and Seattle grunge. It was just coming. We were just coming out of that. People are going, Brian Setzer, what are you doing? A big band? Horns? That, that's not grunge. What, you know, what is that? Right. And I, that's how you, you know, do something, create something new that by doing stuff that other people aren't doing, you know, and that's where that came from. And I think we did one record for Hollywood Records and it did okay. You know, maybe a hundred thousand copies. Then we did a second record, Guitar Slinger. Did better, two hundred thousand copies in uh, ninety six, uh, and I think it was about okay. You get here's your next record, and this is do or die with Interscope, and uh, we had Jump Drive and Whale on there, and that drove it as a big hit, and suddenly three million sales. And if that one happened, we, he might have put the big band to bed at that point. You just got, you know, but today, oh my gosh, hundred thousand records, two hundred thousand records. That's a lot. Yeah. Back then, you know, I think probably breaking even around a million sold or something after all the press that goes into trying to work a record and things. So, um, yeah, that was kind of the things that happened along the way there. And yeah, we were in movies like The Mask Me the Song. Uh, I think we were on Beverly Hills 90210 and episode or the nanny and things like that, where we're actually on camera or I'd walk down the street in Japan and people would, you know, recognize us. And that, that was strange, you know, meaning that didn't used to happen, you know, when I went to Japan. So, cause we were on TV a lot. So appearances and things like that. So, um, yeah, that was going on and it was very exciting. Well, yeah, I, without a doubt. Now, y- you know, you jokingly said they they didn't put my picture on the cover of Modern Drummer magazine, but <laughs> but you know what? I'm going to give you props because I know that you were uh, best big band drummer in the readers poll. You know, so <laughs> yeah, so so Bernie true. got the that's last true. laugh, right? So I I guess so. You know, it's interesting too. Speaking of covers that are interesting that happened, Brian and the, the Brian Setzer Orchestra got the cover on Downbeat Magazine. Now, Downbeat's a jazz magazine. We weren't jazz. I mean, there's 13 horns, but that was the tie-in to, uh, and the swing groove of it that they even thought, this is such a big thing, and let's put him on the cover. He was like in a swimming pool in a suit, you know, with his guitar, uh, like in Hollywood or something, you know. And uh, so we we're on the cover of Downbeat Magazine as a band, and... Gosh, I don't think that would happen now. But no one would have thought what we did as a band with a, a big band would get that big like that. But it wasn't jazz. That's part of it. It was vocals and Brian's rock, rockabilly guitar that came out of the Stray Cats and the swing movement that was happening as a as a culture thing right at that moment. Well, it was just a, a, a I guess, a 
you know, pardon the pun, but a perfect orchestration of all those elements coming together, you know, at the time. And, and, you know, it was just it speaks for itself. And, you know, as you said, Brian is still going strong with the orchestra and it's just great music. And, and, you know, you you lent a a huge hand to that, um, you know, during the genesis of the project. So I I wanted to at least mention it because, you know, I think that's where, you know, I think that's where most people immediately recognize you from. Now, um, Bernie, I want to make sure that, that we talk about this fantastic record um that that you're working right now and we talked a little bit about working a record and how hard it is to do in this day and age in the music business but um i listened to it over the weekend uh the the record is called burn 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 and again it's b-e-r-n folks uh so when you go to look look for this uh but it's the bbb featuring bernie dressel and bernie i want to say right off the the you know from jump street here on this Every musician on this record is just the A-list guy on whatever instrument it is they're playing. So talk to us a little bit about putting together the BBB and and doing this record because it's incredible. Well, thank you. Yeah, and again, this is, even though like 98% of big bands in history have had the word big band, like, the uh, Woody Herman Big Band or whatever, the Joe Schmo Big Band. And I made sure Big Band wasn't in the, in the title. I thought, let's, it's 2018, let's change it up here. That's why I call it the BBB featuring Bernie Russell. And BBB doesn't really, really stand for anything. It's supposed to be where the listener can uh, create jazz-wise what he thinks it stands for. Uh, either something funny, something real, something rude, uh, that kind of a thing. Now, putting the band together, uh, bass player-wise, like even in the album, I try to get like things that have come from my life uh, and get personal with the album and with the band. And from the Brian Setzer Orchestra, I picked on bass Johnny Spaz Hatton, who's played bass with Brian from 2001 till now. And uh, so... It's not just upright bass. There is a little bit of that rockabilly slap bass, maybe in about 20% of the places, just to be a little different from just having it be upright bass or not electric bass. And, uh, but it's not, it's not rockabilly. This is more along the lines of the big band, drummer-led big bands of the past, whether it's Gene Krupa, Louis Belson, Buddy Rich, where it features an instrument called the drums. <laughs> so people like the drums, as you know. They're visual, they're fun, they're primal. Uh, and uh, so the bass player is, is that, the upright slap. I decided not to have piano. 98% of big bands ever have had piano in it. So no piano. Uh, we have uh, electric guitar, a la Setzer, but not a Setzer style. And in fact, Brian Setzer started with piano and Brian on guitar, the Brian Setzer Orchestra, and then eventually by Dirty Boogie, when he started getting that slap bass in there more, we got rid of the piano. It was just not needed. It was just too much sound, and you already had the big band acting like a keyboard almost and, and somewhat. So one of the things I also did was call people I like, 
That's good, right? Yeah. Call people that I went to school with, maybe about four, I don't know, uh, at Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York. Um, I tried to stay away. Another big band I was in for 15 years is uh, Gordon Goodwin Big Fat Band, where we won a Grammy for Best best Large Jazz Ensemble Album. And uh, I try to not have those guys in the band, or if they're in the band, they're playing a different instrument, like instead of tenor sax, they're playing alto. But it's not those, not those, those cats. I also try to have diversity, meaning I have ladies in my band. Do I hear ladies applauding out there? You should. Um, <laughs> so, you know, as a guy who I'm 56 now, who I see a lot is older uh, guys. And playing with them a lot. So that leads to calling them more. So I went out of my way to call some more ladies for the band. I went out of my way to call some that are 22 years old that I don't play with because they're the new crop coming up. Uh, uh, Carl Saunders is, you know, older than me. He played with Buddy Rich's big band and Alan Kaplan. So I, I went all over the board with age and trying to be diverse, also culturally and race but still calling the best people and still trying to spread it out as best you can. Nothing's perfect. Uh, there's no uh, quotas of a certain percentage, but just try to at least go there and try to make that happen a little more of outside the box of what I would normally or who I would normally play with. So that was part of it. Um, I also tried to pick tunes uh, that, again, don't have to be drum solos, but they're drummy and uh, stuff to kick the big band of kind of lash out and catch figures and there's not extended solo sections. I'm trying to hide the jazz per se, meaning the solos might be horn solos, guitar solos might be 30 seconds to 45 seconds long, minute at the longest, no three minute solos, no extended solos where there's no backgrounds and suddenly it's a jazz quartet. I'm trying to get more people than just jazz lovers to like big band music and drumming that wouldn't normally listen to it. And that seems to be working. I mean, it's kind of what Brian Setzer did, too. We're playing with a big band, and there's, you know, three million sales or sold-out concerts. So in a different way, like no vocals in this band, singers will come up to me at a gig, go, hey, they see, like, there's no singer in the band. They think this is their chance. (laughs) Hey, if you ever need a singer... And I look him straight in the eye, I go, we will never have a singer. Yeah. This features an instrument called the drums. And then they kind of power away. Uh, one young girl got really furious with me. But uh, I kind of enjoyed telling them that uh, it's, you know, not the, you know, vocal music. Gosh, it's all over the place. And it's a good thing. And, you know, it connects with people. Obviously, it's in so many successful music successful music and instrumental music is down the ladder as far as popularity i would say and i'm trying to feature that drumming instrument that people really do dig and uh but not make it uh or to make it accessible so again not too long of tunes all the tunes are like four minutes to five minutes long they're not eight to ten uh it gets in and gets out a little quicker, the tension span. These are some of the characteristics of the band. And energetic tempos. Uh, I don't write any of the music. 
So I can pick great tunes, great writers, jettison stuff that I don't think is good enough or energetic enough or a good mix for the record just because I wrote it. We're going to play this because I wrote it. No, I'm trying to pick really be a good song picker, uh, tune picker and producer and of the shows and the album where it's fun to listen to first tune to the last note. Well, mission accomplished there, Bernie. I mean, I, and I'm not just saying that, you know, if, if I thought it was just an okay record, I would say, yeah, you know, you got an okay record here, but it's, you know, I listened to it a couple of times over the weekend and, and it's, you know, it's produced very well. And I know that, that you were co-producer on, on the sessions, um, you know, it's produced very well sonically. It's very pleasing. Um, and, and, you know, you, you talked about it being instrumental music and, 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 you know, saying that instrumental music isn't as popular, but it's a throwback to a different time. I mean, you know, it was, it was certainly before my lifetime, but, you know, in, in the forties and fifties, this is what you heard on the radio. You know, it, that's right. It was the pop music of the day. Yeah, it, it really was. So it's got this really uh-huh. cool vintage vibe to it. Um, and, you know, it's, um, it, you know, look, I love drums so much. It's <laughs> it's not even funny, as do you. But, you know, some of these uh-huh. proggy rock bands that have, you know, like you said, these 12 minute you know, opus drum solo kind of things. I just, it loses my attention quickly. Um, you know, so I, I kind of went into listening to your record thinking, well, it's going to be a drum solo in every song and it's not, it's very accessible music. So, so kudos to you for putting out a record that I think will appeal to everybody, not just drummers. Well, I got to add to that. Our lead trumpet player, by the way, my lead trumpet players, you know, they're animals. Uh, Jimmy Havorka <laughs> plays with the Eagles now. Tony Bonsera played, uh, was playing with Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. But it's very hard. This, again, part of the things I pick is, you know, that Maynard Ferguson high, uh, trumpet and powerful and exciting. So it's hard on their chops. So no sympathy for them, but it's because it's exciting. But Jamie said to me after, you know, he plays the tunes all the time. With, uh, that we, as we prepare to record the record, um, he said, I thought there would be more drums on it. And I was kind of taken back and going, wait, what do you mean? I, there's drums all through it. And, uh, I'm so, there's a, a, in the last tune with the only tune that's like 15 and a half minutes long, cause it's like a, a suite in the, the, the tradition of like Channel One or West Side Story, that long move, uh, form piece with the big drum solo. I have a one-minute drum solo in it and a three-minute drum solo in it. So, and there's plenty of other one, little ones scattered here and there throughout in moments. And I think there's a lot of drum in it. And I, I, what does mean? I realized it was a compliment that if he would have said, gosh, there's a lot of drums on that. Right. <laughs> Meaning like, too much, too much. Um, so I think all the drumming that I did on it, I think what that points to is I tried to be musical about it in the production of where I play or how much I play or that I'm not overplaying. Uh, and so I think even when there's quote unquote, a lot of drums, it's musical enough that it doesn't feel wrong. And like, I can't wait for this to end like you were talking about. Um, so I think there's, that's a good thing that happened on the record. I, I really don't know if I'll ever top it. 
this was our second album. The first one was called uh, we did live a lot called Live in Burnin, where we play a lot in Burbank at Joe's Great American Bar and Grill. We recorded that first album live in Burnin, eighteen tunes, no fixes, picked the best twelve, made a record of it, and uh, this time Burn 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 is a studio album, and uh, you know. Pick the best 12 that we were already playing, no, best 14 in this case, and, uh, and tried to pick, uh, or put those on there. Then I, and I just feel from the production, the tunes that got on there, the way they were performed, all the ear candy of the production that I put on it. I mean, there's a list, like every tune has something different on it, like sound wise, and it's all subtle enough where it doesn't really jump out like, whoa, that was a lot of tap dancing. Like, I tap danced on uh, Anything Goes for four bars. Um, there's accordion on this. There's balloons popping. There's banjo, baritone guitar, bella laika, ukulele, uh, all kinds of different th- sounds, taiko drums, buckets, trash cans. But it's all subtle enough that it still, I think, retains the DNA of what you're saying, that classic big band, yet I'm subtly bringing it into ear candy, Sergeant Pepper production kind of stuff uh, that, uh, you know, the Beatles being important to me. I mean, there's even nine clarinets on two tunes. The Los Angeles Clarinet Choir is on two tunes on on the song Burn, 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 which is a homage to Benny Goodman, clarinetist, and Gene Krupa, floor tom. And instead of one clarinet like Benny, there's nine clarinets. And so there's a lot of quote-unquote ear candy sprinkled throughout that I think when if you just heard a couple of tunes, you wouldn't get it, get the whole album. It, I feel it really starts with the weirdness of that first introductory two-minute tune all the way to that last 15-minute tune with the surprise ending uh, that uh, takes you on a journey that actually is a throwback to the idea of an actual album, not just singles. Oh, I can spit out those words, can I? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's well, but I mean, you know, good for you that you saw this as an album because it is becoming a lost art form in modern music. You know, everybody just wants to get their their single out to, you know, Spotify or YouTube or, or you know, whatever. Um, and it's never really, you know, I'm one of those guys. I still like my stuff in physical form. You know, I mean, it's great to hear it on your phone and in your car and all that. But I don't feel like I own music until I have, you know, in this case, either vinyl or or a compact disc so that I can look at the jacket. I can look at the liner notes. You know, those are the things that are important to me as as an old school guy, you know, or an old soul, I guess. But, um, you know, so kudos to you for seeing this as a fully realized, you know, album and not just, Hey, here's the new track off of my album. Yes. Uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, I put a lot of thought into this over the time about how it could work. I mean, there's, there's even three, I mean, I'm a drummer. There's three ballad sections on this record. Two of the tunes are half ballads. And so, I didn't want to just keep doing the same thing. So I had to approach them differently or leave them off the record. You know, too many ballads for the drum record. But like the first ballad, Body and Soul, which is my wife's favorite tune. That's a personal thing. She even plays in the L.A. Clarinet Choir. So I got her on the album. 
for a couple of tunes, but Body and Soul, the typical ballad, brush ballad. Well, I played it on a 20-inch Craviato beast snare. I call it 20 by 4. Uh, and so this huge head. And then detune that, maybe about a fourth down, just to get a little different sound. It's subtle, but it's there. Um, the next ballad, I use like mallets on it on early spring where it's almost like a pseudo rumba or I, I use regular mallets on the toms and then I did a little overdub to the studio album, like a Ringo with the towel over the floor tom, Sun King. Just kind of underneath that all treated that ballad different. And then the ballad section of the suite at the end is a little more of a pop thing, yet I didn't go totally pop with it. I went brush with the, with the side stick, uh, brush on the snare, and but more straight eighth and straight sixteenth feel that was a little more pop or, uh, yeah, not jazz per se. Uh, so there's different things where I really thought it through to have variety or leave it off the record and introduce sounds like I introduced loops into this uh, on like maybe the 10th track in onto the world is a ghetto. There's some percussion loops and guitar and keyboard loops. And uh, then I bring in a loop on another tune or oh, that one's first actually where it just was on this unison section. But this whole album too kind of stemmed from, this is an interesting thing. The other producer where we co-produce is Gary Reber and he produced Buddy Rich's, I almost want to say last concert video, but not the last time he was ever filmed or playing. It was two years before uh, his unfortunate uh, passing. Uh, it was called Live on King Street, and I think it was retitled The Lost West Side Stories Tapes, or, uh, Channel One Tapes, or something like that. Gary produced that, worked with Buddy hand-in-hand to put that on, and I met him oh, about seven years ago, and he's the co-producer. So having him involved in it, I forget what I was even getting at about it. Um, but he's the, is the co-producer and, uh, oh, oh, I know the audiophile aspect of it. He has a magazine called widescreen review and it's about home theater and this kind of thing. And so we released this, both these records on CD and digital downloads, you know, like Amazon, CD baby, iTunes store, not Spotify, not Apple Music. And, uh, but we also released it on CD, but we also released it on Blu-ray Pure Audio. Oh, cool. Uh, which is 96K, 24 bit. So it, it does sound better. It really does. Yeah. It's my favorite. Even though we released the first album on vinyl and vinyl will come for this for Burn, Burn, Burn in about another four months. Um, that's my favorite sound of the different formats. But it's also on the Blu-ray, which is, you know, you can't play that in your CD player. got to have a Blu-ray player. Um, it's just audio. It's not a video concert. That's that stereo and also 5.1 surround and what they call 9.1 oral 3D, where you got a vertical surround around you, you too. So like an aquarium of sound coming at you. Uh, buckets coming in the rear on... Uh, on uh, Night in Tunisia while I'm playing drums in the front. So there's some overdubs of stuff and like bones all the way to the left or the right, faxes all the way to the left, all the way to the back, trumpets up high above the rhythm section in the front. So it's an audiophile release too, um, which is a different aspect and actually brings, again, uh, 
this quote-unquote big band jazz record to not a jazz audience where someone that has surround sound speakers go, I want to hear music in surround. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the tunes we did uh, by War called uh, The World is a Ghetto, that was released, am I right, 40 years ago? Uh, but it was released in quadraphonic back then. It was like the number one record uh, <laughs> yeah. by, uh, by War. Um, and, uh, but, you know, not many people had quadraphonic. Just like now, not many people have oral 3D 9.1. But they do have 5.1 sometimes with, because of their home theater system. And so it's available that way, and we're selling, we're selling records, we're selling Blu-rays, uh, we're not putting them on Spotify, giving it away for free. It's it's available on my website and at the retail outlets to buy. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm just gonna say it again, you know, to my listeners, this is a. a a record that everybody should have from 2018. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I, and I'll just leave it at that, but it's a fantastic project. Um, now, Bernie, I, I would be remiss also if I didn't at least mention it. You know, anybody that has watched a movie in the last 10 years or any television in the last 10 years has probably heard your drumming. Um, your list of yeah. credits for, you know, motion pictures and television is pretty incredible. Um, and, and just to give, you know, just a little short, uh, you know, blurb about it. Jurassic World, uh, Inside Out, Minions, American Sniper, uh, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, Batman versus Superman, um, Family Guy, American Dad, The Cleveland Show, The Simpsons. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. Talk to me a little bit, um, you know, if you would, about some of those gigs. You know, I mean, it, I, I'm assuming those are you go into a studio, you're working with with a large ensemble and you're laying down drum tracks. Do you know what these are going to be for before you go in or are you just going in and, and playing what they stick in front of you? Going in and playing what they stick in front of me. Although <laughs> most writers will go here. This is kind of a guide. Make it better. Don't don't play exactly what's on the page. Play a little what you think is better. And then they listen and might direct you differently, but they they realize that any drum chart, whether it's a big band chart or something for, well, you know, one of the other ones recently was Incredibles 2, um, they'll give you, you know, either just slashes and some words, or they'll give you an exact hi-hat part or kick drum, and then you got to fill it in some more. Or they'll say some more verbally to you before you play it. But yes, playing at the same time as, like, TV is usually about 35 musicians, which sounds like a lot, and it is in today. Although the movies can be like 100 musicians, because it's a full symphony orchestra out in the big room, and then you're in the drum booth. Or And then some of the time, I'll be in the drum booth, and then they go, okay, there's no drums on this. Go out into the percussion section with the other six percussionists or the other two percussionists on Family Guy and play percussion, orchestral percussion back there. Uh, there's no drums on this cue. So the, I'm pretty, you know, versatile as far as a studio player, you know, being versatile in styles, but also the fact that I even play orchestral percussion, timpani. Like I used to play timpani on 
deep space, Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Voyager and, um, so, or mallets, you know, playing xylophone on some, uh, Disney theme park thing or whatever, you know, uh, it can be all over the board and you don't know what's coming until you show up. Now, if it was really horrendous part, meaning they say studio work is 95% walk in the park, 5% pure terror. Yeah, well, that's true. Meaning, like, <laughs> oh, no, look at all that. Now, I'm a pretty darn good reader, so maybe my terror is 1%. Um, but usually, that, sometimes they'll send you the parts ahead of time because they're just being thorough. And I'd say most of the time I look at it and I go, oh, I didn't need to look at that. That's fine. But they're making sure, you know, and maybe right. they're sending all the parts because the violin part was so hard. And they just sent everyone their parts. But generally, yes, you're seeing it for the first time on the stand. You, you know, you might cheat, look ahead and let's see if there's anything to look at before. So you're not surprised when you turn the next page over and go, oh, no, you've looked at it before the session starts, meaning five minutes before, 15 minutes before, take a look at it, see if there's any problem things to look at. And you do it. And let let me tell you this. They want it perfect the first time. Oh, of course. And and the the first time, meaning they want to see if they want to change anything or (laughs) if they wrote a wrong note. They don't want you, like a, a clarinet player, to play a wrong note because they missed it. They want to hear the wrong note if they wrote it wrong. They don't want to be distracted by mistakes. That being said, we're all human. They know that. You just got to hit a very, very high batting average. Um, now, if you're brand new in the studio, like you're getting your first shot at it with this 100-piece orchestra, you make a mistake there and you're the new guy or gal, uh-oh, they're worried. Are you going to be the, uh, you know, are there more mistakes to come? Did we call the wrong person? So there might be little extra eyeballs on you at the beginning. Once you're there a little while, you might get a little benefit of the doubt for an oops moment because we're human. But that being said, you're trying to play it as great as you can that first time. And the problem is you might have played it great, but now, all right, let's try and record it now. All right, now you got to get right again. Or, okay, let's one more time or this section, let's get better. And you don't want to make mistakes on the, the previous times you got it right. So it, there's a little bit of pressure, and it just comes like like a field goal kicker. you got to just have the nerves of steel or psych yourself into it's okay, it's not a big deal, and uh, and let's, let's, let's kick this field goal now, win the game. So there's a little of that going on when you see the music, yes. Well, I, you know, I mean, I, I had to mention it because, again, your list of credits is just I, I mean, it's incredible. It really is. There's no other word to, to describe it. Um, Bernie, as we get ready to wrap up here and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, one of the traditions that we have here on the Drum Shuffle podcast is we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice for other musicians. And it can really be anything you want it to be but your career has just been so legendary. Share with us a good piece of advice that we can take out there in our day-to-day lives. Hmm. Well, there's, I have so much advice. The question is how to narrow it down. I mean, one of the things about uh, reading uh, is just to be able to, you know, 
be comfortable with that. The, the thing is, there's a joke. How do you get a guitar player to turn down? You put a chart in front of him, <laughs> meaning he's going to not be as loud and as sure of himself because now he's being careful. When you're reading, especially, you have to make it sound like you're not reading, meaning reading music. You have to play strong, like even the first time through a chart. I've never seen this before. Like you played it for years and have that kind of unabashed confidence and energy and, 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 uh, 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 like, like you own it immediately. No excuses because this is the first time through it. So, you know, you got to be that good person. It's real easy, you know, to complain about things on gigs and sometimes rightfully so. What? The food's not ready on the break? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it's so, or the hotel rooms aren't ready. We got to be in the bus an hour longer. You know, things will not always go perfect. Sometimes you have to speak your mind and say, well, this is supposed to be this way. But you, you got to pick your battles when it comes to that. So you're not the bad guy always pointing out things that are wrong. You got to be, stay positive. Uh, it can be a very, uh, tear jerking thing to try to be a musician and try to break through and it's not happening quick enough or, you know, uh, that you're, uh, something didn't go well and you got to just learn from mistakes, get better. This applies to anything non-music too. Um, and, uh, keep moving forward and positively and try to keep bet getting better. I think, uh, even Buddy Rich said, you know, you, someone asked him, do you feel like, okay, you're there, you've gotten, you, you've made it or whatever. And you can't, like he said, you, you can't ever feel that way. You have to keep trying to get better in, in every way in your life and music, um, playing. Cause if you don't, it's over. You know, you have to just keep striving to be better than you were the day before in all aspects. So uh, that's really important. Uh, never and then never give up. Sometimes people say, "Bernie, did you ever feel like giving up?" And I never. It was never an option to give up. But you do have to be self-assess. You know, are things working out? Is this? Is there? Are there positive things enough to keep going to be a professional drummer or musician or whatever you're doing? That uh, it's not a false. Uh, idea of your or real uh, abilities and if it's just about trying to get in the right places and get better and keep trying to play with the best musicians you can play with so you can keep getting better and you know one gig leads to another so you know at the beginning you got to take the stuff that doesn't pay as well or doesn't pay at all or you hate this music i think they say you want to try to take get do gigs at one are great music, two, have great players, three, pays well. Um, there might have been a fourth one, but I mean, if you can get two of those three, then you should do it. But, you know, at the beginning, okay, one of those, or just the fact you're even getting to play, obviously. But by the end, you want to try to have it all, you know, that you're, you're, that it's all, you're getting all those positive things. And, uh, you know, I've never been afraid to quit a gig. I quit Brian Setzer after 15 years. I quit. The Gordon Goomans big fat band after 15 years. Uh, I kid people, I'll quit my gig. The BBB featuring Bernie Dressel after 15 years. Um, I keep trying to change it up going forward. 
create new things, not stagnate. It's real easy to get tired of where you are musically or a gig. And, you know, but, you know, there's a lot of musicians. We're not all working as much as we'd like to. So it's a tough thing to quit a gig. But sometimes if it's taking so much of your time, you have to to open up new opportunities that hopefully will be better. But, you know, a different opportunity is kind of fun, too. You know, it can be stressful, but it's good to, like, change it up and widen yourself if if you're able to. Okay. See, I could keep giving advice. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's yeah, but it's all great advice, Bernie, and, and we certainly appreciate it. I mean, it's it's good stuff. And you know, I I'm going to go ahead and extend the invitation. You are welcome on this show anytime. We've got to have you back soon. Um, I know that that you've got some some gigs uh, 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 around. Um, I know that the Grammy season is upon us and I am certain that your record is going to be considered heavily by the Recording Academy uh, for honors at the 61st Grammy Awards. So we'll be looking for you on that show as well. Uh, But come back and talk to us and and keep us posted on what's going on. Sound like a deal? Yes, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, I love talking to you, Jimmy. Thank you so much. I forgot one thing. We told people the name of the record and the spelling of burn, burn, burn. We didn't tell them how to spell my last name. It's, <laughs> it's actually easy to misspell it. There's one S in Dressel. So D-R-E-S-E-L, if you're looking to find more information about me or my website, BernieDressel.com, it's one S in Dressel or, and in the band title. Yeah. And I will make sure that we are linked up to you appropriately uh, from the drumshuffle.com as well. Bernie, thank you Fantastic. so Yeah, thank you so much for your time. And we will talk to you very, very soon, sir. All right, Jamie. Thank you so much. And uh, have a great time out there, everybody. All right. All right. We'll see you, Bernie. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, everybody, that is going to wrap up episode 42 of the Drum Shuffle. We really do appreciate all of you listening in. We simply can't do what we do here without all of you tuning in every single week. So please keep doing that. To that end, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen in today. We don't want you to miss a single episode. We have great guests coming up over the next few weeks. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Tyler Zarzika. Uh, Tyler has just wrapped up a tour with Noah Cyrus uh, and heading back out on the road with Kiara. Tyler has such an inspirational, great story. Um, you're not going to want to miss that, I promise. We have some other just phenomenal drummers lined up that I can't confirm or deny at this point. Uh, but if you send me an email at the drum shuffle podcast at gmail.com, I might give you a sneak peek. We love hearing from you, so keep those emails coming. Our web address, of course, is thedrumshuffle.com. You can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. If you are listening to this episode the day it comes out, uh, that it's published, I will be on the lake uh, in Tennessee with some of my band brothers attempting to catch as many striped bass as our boat will hold. So send a good thought out into the universe that I'm smiling from ear to ear holding about a 15, 16 pound striped bass. 
Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. So until then, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers. <laughs>